0: From the Preservation Maryland Studios in the Historic Podcast District of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Why do we do what we do? And why don't others understand why it's so important? Those are the driving questions that prompted longtime preservationist and real estate expert Tom Moriarty to dive into a discourse on what preservation needs in the years ahead. It's a big task, but one that we need to constantly revisit if we hope to save the places that truly matter. So prepare yourself for some real talk from one of America's most trusted voices in preservation on this week's PreserveCast. Before we start this week's episode, I really want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask for your help. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that depends on member contributions to fund its work. This podcast receives no government support and currently has no major funder support. Its budget is entirely dependent on listener contributions. I'm hoping you'll consider making a quick gift to help support this podcast, which is bringing important preservation stories to thousands of listeners around the country. Think of us as your Preservation Netflix. Any amount helps, and you can make a quick online donation by going to PreserveCast.org and clicking the Donate Now button in the upper right-hand corner. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get preserving. Tom Moriarty has a background in historic preservation, urban mixed use development, commercial area revitalization, retail programming in specialized environments, and downtown and district redevelopment strategies. Tom was a founder of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's Main Street program and later of the National Main Street Center in Washington, D.C. His work focused. Tom was a founder of the National Trust for Historic Preservation's Main Street Program and later of the National Main Street Center in Washington, D.C. His work focuses on the economics and planning of downtowns in mixed-use areas, with a special emphasis on redevelopment of historic and commercial districts, transit-related development, collateral development for institutional property owners, and the market realities of tourism development areas. He's a frequent speaker at conferences, training programs, seminars, He is a frequent speaker at conferences, training programs, and seminars, and has lectured on commercial area and downtown renewal, the economics of historic preservation, and destination concept development. He's the managing principal of Retail Development Strategies, LLC. And since 2017, he's also been a trustee of the 1772 Foundation of Providence, Rhode Island. He's also a member of the boards of the Preservation Action Foundation, the Responsible Hospitality Institute, and the Clarendon Alliance in Arlington, Virginia. Well, Tom, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast to talk a little bit about the future of preservation and, and where we've been, and in and your mind and, and others, where we need to go. And before we get started in all that, though, what got you started in preservation? We always ask this question and it's it's interesting to hear from folks who have had these long careers to hear where their roots began.
1: Yeah, I I don't know that I can attribute to any one thing. uh, From childhood, I was always attracted to older places and older buildings. I thought a lot of the new stuff that I saw going up in my hometown was pretty shoddy. Uh, So it was almost an instinctive kind of uh, reaction to things. That continued when I was in architecture school. I worked for the Historic American Building Survey a couple of times. uh, and With each step of this, I gained a deeper appreciation for older structures and why they were special so I guess that's what got me in in the first place and I just never completely left
0: (laughs) and you know we gave a little bit of background on you and and read your bio you were involved you know in terms of early on in, in the formation of the Main Street Center which must be a great story maybe we can get a little bit of it here just the taste of it and and perhaps where the name came from who came up with that
1: Sure. Well, the the name came from uh, Mary Means, who was at the time the head of the Midwest Office of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Mary had noticed uh, in older downtowns in her region uh, that there was a lot of decay and neglect, and people didn't appreciate them and weren't putting much effort into it. So she decided to create a demonstration, and Main Street is kind of an iconic symbol. Uh, It carries meaning other than just the physical place, although we actually had a Main Street in my community. So I was in one of the three towns chosen as a demonstration uh, by the trust to figure out what, if anything, could be done to uh, staunch the decline and try something. Just try, What could we try to make something happen? Uh, that demonstration lasted for three years. Uh, at that point, seven federal agencies came to the National Trust and said, we don't quite know what you did, but can you teach other people how to do it if we give you money? So the three of us in uh, Madison, Indiana were where I was, Galesburg, Illinois and Hot Springs, South Dakota, moved to D.C. and formed the National Main Street Center now 40 years ago in 1980, and it still rolls along. So that anniversary is going to be celebrated at the uh, National Main Street Conference in Dallas in May this year.
0: So, I mean, you know, people, you never know when you're involved in something that's going to become historic, right? I mean, if, if we did, we probably <laughs> would. You know. But But I'm just curious, sometimes you do know, like, this is pretty special. Did you have a sense for that at the time, or was it like, eh, this is just the next thing I'm working on?
1: You know, I I knew that the problem was a real one, uh, and we very consciously... Termed the Main Street Program economic development within the context of historic preservation, as opposed to preservation focusing on economic development. We wanted to bring people in who had not seen themselves as traditional preservationists. Uh, to the extent that one of my property owners, who owned a business and his building, said, "I never thought of myself as a preservationist before we started working on this, but now I see where I fit." So it, it was it was uh, th- that part of it was very special to see. New- people realize that they could be active participants in preservation when they hadn't thought of themselves that way before? And that's one of the things that kind of got me thinking about where should we be looking in the future uh, as preservation continues to evolve.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you and I, I mean, interest of full disclosure, we have uh, met and talked many times before this interview, and you shared with me <laughs> this presentation that you had given to a conference of, uh, at Indiana Landmarks. I guess they, you know, uh, folks there reached out to you and and given your experience, not only in preservation, but in real estate and redevelopment and uh, commercial revitalization and all the work that you do professionally said, you know, talk to us a little bit about where we've been, where we're headed and, you know, what our problems are. And that's kind of where this comes from. Is that a good characterization of
1: it? I think that's a great way to characterize it. Uh, I was going back to Indiana, having lived there for six years in the uh, 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 1970s, um, and ran a citywide preservation organization, and Main Street evolved as our primary focus. We also had house museums and historic gardens and heritage tourism development and uh, political advocacy and all that stuff. So it was kind of a broad-ranging, typical preservation organization in an extraordinary little town, and downtown work became the step that made sense for us at that point, and they're still continuing it today. Um, so when I was invited back to Indiana after all these years, I thought, well, let, let's, let's pause and say, why do we do what we do in the first place? This was a preservation audience. And more critically for me, why don't others understand why preservation is so important? Where have we not delivered in a way that this can be br- more broadly applied and accepted? And that led to, uh, in honor of David Letterman, another Hoosier, uh, what are the top 10 things that preservation should consider? So I have a list of 10 and I'm ready to go through them whenever you're ready.
0: Well let let's uh let's do this top 10 list. I hope that just like on Letterman that it gets progressively funnier as we go. Well, you you well, promised I, that, right?
1: Can't promise that, but <laughs> uh, but I, but you know it, it 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 is a list, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, People yeah. can laugh or cry or whatever they want to do. Yeah,
0: and I think so. this is good. I mean because you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing about preservation and the future of it, and I do think it's good for people to put uh, pen to paper and kind of come up with this, and, and hopefully this inspires some dialogue and conversation among people listening, and people can write us back, um, you know, at, at info at preservecast.org and let us know um, if they disagree or agree or if they have different feelings on this, but why don't you take it away and tell us what your, your number one thing is?
1: Well, and these are not necessarily in priority order. But my first was that our preservation message needs clarity. Uh, You know, when we think about global climate change and healthcare concerns and uh, the generational shift and all the societal changes and gigantic problems we're facing, uh, and you say, "Well, why is preservation important?" Well, because it's historically or architecturally significant. That tends to get lost in the shuffle, and I, I think preservation's message to date has has made the benefits and the goals of what we're trying to do unclear. Frequently, they're very subjective, and they're inconsistent. because of that and because of the way it started with preserving big houses and properties of, of white people, uh, it has been perceived quite accurately, although I think it's changing, thankfully, as exclusionary and elitist. And uh, people say, well, that's." people have tended to say that's for somebody else, not for me. And I think that's a big problem. We've had recent improvements about cultural inclusion uh, and, and representing intangible history and cultural history that was not part Part of what was saved and, in fact, was was minimized as a priority. Uh, and that's a critical turning point, but it's still early on and we still have a long way to go when we make the argument for why preservation should be part of uh, an overall uh, way of making development decisions and how cities grow and what's important, I think our current message or the old message has been hard to articulate and very hard to match against things like environment, housing, or education. So, you know, 54 years since the Preservation Act, so for some reason, we have not fully captured the hearts and minds of the general public. So I wanted to think about well, how can that change and how should it change? So that led to number two. And that is recognizing and understanding the changing audience and priorities. Traditionally, preservation's audience—and I'm looking back five, ten years ago now—was primarily white, upper-middle class. Uh, But that's also shifting with the, the new acceptance and realization that everybody should have a stake in this and has a legitimate part to play, because history includes everyone. Recognizing that, though, millennials have different ways, the future generation, the generation going to take over from from all of us old white guys like me, uh, they perceive ways of communicating and participating very differently than the traditional ones. Millennials, and some of these are sort of uh, broadly drawn stripes, but I think they're reasonably accurate. Uh, Millennials prefer events and projects uh, and momentary things not long-term memberships and long-term commitments. So how does preservation address gathering support for what we're trying to achieve in different ways that that uh, the future generations can participate in and buy into? And then the other side of the argument about the audience and our priorities is that the regulatory process for preservation, uh, I think, is worn thin. Uh, it, it is frequently subjective. Uh, We don't have hard boundaries to follow, and we're going to talk about some things relating to that a bit later. Um, But the process of regulatory control itself uh, has become very cumbersome and hard to administer, and people don't understand why an answer is one way, one time, and another. So I think a better understanding of what our audiences are up against will also help resolve that.
0: Well, yeah, and I I would jump in and say I was meeting yesterday with uh, – Someone in in the preservation community who will remain nameless um, and but the broader preservation community, they might not consider themselves truly historic preservationists, but they they work and they support and um, you know are, are a part of this environment in this ecosystem, and they said to me, "Oh God, I'd never live in a historic district I mean I wouldn't want to do that huh. and I thought. you know, like this is someone who gets it, who supports it, but even they sort of draw the line there. And, you know, I feel like to some extent we've become our own worst enemy, Um, you know, in historic districts and the people who serve on them do incredible work. Um, But, you know, 50 years of headwinds against us have created some real challenges.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, we're also a very strongly property rights-oriented country, and there is a part of the population that just says nobody should tell me anything about anything I should do, which uh, as a principle, I suppose I can understand why somebody would think that, but as a practice, it makes no sense. We have to have some controls and some way of measuring and balancing how our world operates and is changing. So, I, I But I think our message and the way we've handled it may be at the root of some of that yeah absolutely now, that, that That is transferred into, uh, in a broad way, number three, which is the current political and administrative current. You know, we've had a pattern for years of underfunding the Historic Preservation Fund and the Department of Interior, State Historic Preservation Office budgets who are required to administer preservation policy, uh, keep getting budget cuts and underfunded. Uh, those mandates that are increasing and don't have sufficient uh federal funding to back them up. All of these have contributed to slowing down the process uh, and not really helped broaden the message or the, the uh, implementation of it. I was astonished a year ago when a representative from uh, the administration came to Preservation Advocacy Week uh, and was asked a question about full funding for the Preservation Fund, and this guy was completely unaware that this short Preservation Fund is not funded by taxpayers. He was justifying the budget cuts by saying, well, taxpayers shouldn't be subsidizing this. No, no, no. This comes from offshore oil and gas revenues. You just aren't appropriating it. And I I found that to be astonishing. So we, we clearly have a big gap in what people think about what the preservation fund is supposed to do and how it's funded and authorizing it to actually do what it should. The, the other concern I had, although I think this is kind of uh, slowing down, the uh, Trump administration's Qualified Opportunity Zone program uh, included no controls whatsoever about societal or historical or zoning regulations that I thought was a big gap uh, in, in what uh, I'm sure they felt was going to be a great economic development tool. It really hasn't taken off because of the way it was set up, but that was a worry that we don't have these uh, ways of reviewing what we're intending to do to make sure they're actually beneficial. Uh, so I, I think we've had a, a, a drift in the wrong direction uh, in terms of political administrative currents. That then leads to another beef of mine uh, as, as somebody who is concerned about design in historic districts, and that's the practices of the Secretary of standards, which after 44 years, which – and I know from interviews I did several years ago – the standards were developed quickly because we had to. Nobody knew the initial tax credit bill was going to pass. And then when it did, the Interior had to scramble to write something. And they were pretty good for what they are. But because they've not been substantially rethought after more than four decades, um, they've been adopted widely uh, as local and state design standards, kind of by default, because, you know, why would we reinvent them? Uh, the problem is the Department of Interior hasn't had the time or money or the directive to rethink whether they're still uh, there and that they're still appropriate. Uh, my sense is that the standards are uh, too narrow, that it's a one-size-fits-all approach, and they're too rigid, and they're way too subjective. Uh, A lot of the things that are written for the East Coast don't work for the Midwest or the Far West, particularly the Far West. Uh, They don't work for other cultural contexts other than uh, the traditional East Coast urban one. Uh, So there are some problems we have with the way the United States is that the original standards and their successors have not been structure to fully recognize and accept. Uh, I I think because of this and because of the subjectivity they're enforced in different ways in different states, in my own experience, um, that's a problem, and we need to rethink them. uh, one of the things that we're moving toward as a research area and some other things I'm involved with is to think about how they work these design standards in the British system. Uh, so in rethinking the Secretary's standards, we'd like to look at the British approach, where there are uh, uh, buildings that are categorized uh, as, as graded, if you will. Um, they Instead of one set of design standards for all buildings, in Britain they have 17 building categories – Schools, hospitals, residential, multifamily, single-family, rural estate, rural cottage, big, big, long list. But it clarifies how far you should go with this. And in their graded system, instead of you're either a National Historic Landmark in the U.S. or you're National Register listed, um, they have more flexibility that the lower the grade of significance, the greater the degree of intervention. And it's been much friendlier and much more approachable there in the way they they, uh, deal with uh, managing the evolution of older structures.
0: But Tom, um, I'm curious on on this particular issue. I mean it's been you know 40 odd plus years since we've had substantive updates. What's been missing to this point? How do we change that now? And I know that some of that is tied into showing that there's value to all of this, but but what's been missing for the last 40 years? Is it just political will?
1: Well, I, I don't – first of all, that's a great question, Nick. First of all, I think it's because preservation is not necessarily viewed as a, uh, a factor in a lot of public policy de- development decisions. Uh, I don't know why exactly. I think there are multiple reasons. But we've ended up with uh, within the standards uh, with things stopping entire projects like the ongoing discussion of windows. Uh, and I, I know of multiple large-scale projects where uh, – Energy-inefficient windows, and I know I've been through the data on uh, retaining and restoring wooden windows. I'm all for it when you can. But windows alone have stopped a number of projects that otherwise would have catalyzed redevelopment of major mill buildings and other things because it was this or nothing. And there was no alternative or an option for future replacement of the original uh, type. Uh, it just wasn't even open for discussion so I think we we've, we've again shot ourselves in the foot by being a little too particular for every single building where in some cases some buildings can handle a different degree of intervention. The other problem we've had is currently there are conflicting standards uh, with between uh, the the secretary' standards uh, and the Department of energy, for example. so we have directly conflicting standards in the Department of Energy if you're trying to make a building more energy efficient with uh, what the standards are under the the Secretary standards they they just don't work together very well. So I don't think it means throwing them out and starting over, but I would like to see them evolve and expand in ways that are more broadly applicable.
0: Well, I think that that maybe is a good place to take a quick pause after we take a break, come right back and continue on with this top 10 list and figure out how we get to a better place with historic preservation. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avelius, and Jones, Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about the fearless leader of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association, Emma Maddox Funk, read by Casey Rohn, the primary researcher of Maryland's historic context statement on the state's suffrage legacy.
2: Emma Maddox Funk, leader of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. After decades of an anti-suffrage political climate in the years following the Civil War, the Maryland Woman Suffrage Association emerged as the state's first successful statewide suffrage group. In 1889, Caroline Halliwell Miller gathered a small group of her friends and neighbors in Sandy Spring as the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association. When the Baltimore City Suffrage Club formed in 1894, both groups reorganized under the umbrella of the Maryland Woman Suffrage Association a statewide movement had begun. The Maryland Women's Suffrage Association moved forward cautiously. Wary of provoking opposition, they focused on organizing their members and educating the public. They considered, but ultimately decided against a letter-writing or petitioning campaign and rejected encouragement from national leaders to contest their legal right to vote in court. In 1904, the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association elected a new president, Emma Maddox Funk, who had led the Baltimore City Suffrage Club since 1898. Funk was a Baltimore native and a graduate of Eastern High School, and she had earned a reputation as a talented musician and singer. She described herself as a lifelong supporter of equal rights, who had been transformed into a suffrage activist during two years spent in homebound convalescence. She passed the time by reading suffrage literature, and when she emerged, she immediately sought out other Baltimore women engaged in the movement. One of her major achievements as Maryland Woman Suffrage Association president was successfully lobbying the National American Woman Suffrage Association, known as NASA, to bring their 1906 annual national convention to Maryland. The Lyric Theater in Baltimore hosted the convention from February 7th to 13th in 1906. The gathering convened thousands of suffragists from across the country for a program of speeches, prayer services, musical performances, and club meetings. Attendees witnessed an important milestone, the transition in leadership from the movement's founders to the next generation. Susan B. Anthony, who was elderly and in poor health at the convention, used her remarks to urge the assembled young women to carry on the movement. She passed away just a month later. Her oration at the Lyric was one of the last times that she spoke in public. The Baltimore Convention was a pivotal moment that spurred new leaders and new groups to emerge. Not all of these new leaders agreed with the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association's conservative approach, but Funk continued to pursue patient persuasion and attempts to bring statewide suffrage legislation before the Maryland General Assembly. After the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920, Emma Maddox Funk continued her political engagement and advocated for women's rights, and made two unsuccessful attempts to run for office. Funk's legacy lies in her stewardship of the Maryland Women's Suffrage Association through the critical years of the early 20th century, which brought thousands of Maryland women into political and civic life for the first time.
0: This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast. Today, we are joined by Tom Moriarty. We're talking about all things historic preservation, and we're going through a top 10 list of the challenges and um, perhaps some of the solutions to these pervasive issues that plague the preservation community. So, Tom, when we took our break, we had just talked a little bit about the Secretary of the Interior standards and perhaps the promise that the English approach provides. What's next?
1: Well, the the step after that, I think, is to reconsider how we look at the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, You know, there's no absolute data, but based on some research I've done, there's about in the United States, there's about 160 million structures of all types—residential, commercial, industrial, barn buildings, sheds. You know, that's a lot of buildings the National Register includes, including all the historic districts, only about one and a half percent of those buildings. And I'd like to believe that more than one and a half percent of the buildings in the country are significant and worthy of preservation, but but at the moment, we don't have an administrative mechanism to adequately survey them. So that's another reason to think about uh, adapting the National Register, expanding it for another category of less significant but still valuable buildings, and to measure their value in different ways. So uh, that, that I think, uh, relates to the next one, which is how we measure value in the first place. Um, from a preservation standpoint, I don't believe that historic and aesthetic values alone are enough to justify this. But we also have to recognize that the whole U.S. real estate system is geared toward new construction. Building codes are geared toward new construction. For the most part, underwriting criteria for uh, projects are geared toward new construction even building classifications. Uh, if you have a Class A office building versus a Class B office building uh, in the appraisal community, you can't have, a, 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 w- with very extraordinary exceptions, you can't have a Class A building that's historic. They're all relegated to Class B. Well, once you fall to Class B, the rents achieved are generally lower and often result in lower individual property value and return on investment just because something exists. We're geared toward building building new, building new, building new i think that stands in sharp contrast to the hard to quantify benefits of preservation where when you're in an old space you get a whole different sensibility and there've been recent brain uh, research uh, things that tell us that we feel different and happier in certain kinds of spaces uh, that are parallel with preservation spaces with old spaces we sense the layers of human experience and craftsmanship and materials in old places that you just don't get in a new building it's very hard to feel a sense of belonging to a brand new building, because there's just not enough that's happened there yet. It could be visually exciting, it can be highly functional, but do you really feel like you belong to it right away? So how do you how do you get around that? I, I, I think this requires a kind of rethinking, and it raises the issue of land value versus building value, uh, which we're going to come back to in a few minutes. Well, and I also um, think
0: it ties in really directly to the environmental piece as well. I mean, because we're, we We've become a very throwaway society, not only with just everyday ephemera of life, but with structures. I mean our structures are our structures are designed to be, you know, there's a functional obsolescence thirty years down the road, they're done. You know, and some of that has, as you know, as you well know, is, is tied up in, in tax law and depreciation law, which is getting real wonky. But, I mean, it, it is also an issue with um, climate change and embodied carbon. And, and I know you're going to get into the environmental piece as well. But, I mean, I know here in Maryland, that's where we see sort of the future of some of our advocacy work is in really talking about, well, if Maryland wants to get serious about carbon, then we need to talk about building uh, and that's a tough place to be because, um, you know, the building industry is very strong and we measure our economy in housing starts. We don't measure it in housing rehabs. We don't even track, track housing rehabs.
1: That's correct.
0: <laughs> so, and that's, I that's mean, crazy. yeah, it really <laughs> is.
1: Well, I, you know, that's a great segue into the reason I believe we need to bridge the gap into the conservation ethos, because preservation is about conservation of energy, of embodied energy and carbon and so forth. The measures for those are not yet fully resolved, but they're going to have to get here. It simply is backward thinking to assume that it's always a good idea to demolish and even worse, to build for a 30-year, or 35-year lifespan. I was in an area in Florida not long ago that to, uh, is building uh, new, inexpensive housing in a rural area. And one of the county commissioners said, we're building the slums of the future because these buildings aren't going to last more than 30 years. And that's a terrible and, and very inefficient and wasteful way to build in the first place. We ought to be building with a longer uh, a longer sense of durability and utility. Um, so I, I think that's a critical and absolutely necessary shift we need to make from as and history to one of a larger sense of conservation that includes energy measures uh, and includes, I hope, eventually a way to measure and tax carbon, because there's a lot of value in these buildings that are simply not recognized at all. You're absolutely right. Right. So one one of the other side benefits of that is the difference between real estate and value and real places, Uh, and because of this new is better mentality that we've had for so long... um, we end up with locations that are sterile, uh, that uh, have no character. Uh, and, you know, somebody says, well, that's a marginal thing. That's a personal opinion. Well, it really isn't. Some of that same brain research shows us that our sense of well-being uh, is greater. It's completely subconscious. It's biochemical. Uh, but that our sense of well-being is enhanced by being in better places with a capital P. And th- th- that that's why we have to rethink the role that historic structures and historic spaces, whether it's a room, a building, a neighborhood, or a city, uh, or a part of a city, uh, have a value to us that is beyond current measurements and metrics, but it's it's very, very real. Um, that leads to a sort of uh, separation of, of land and use. Uh, and it's it's something that I call purpose-detached, where it's had enormous implications, where land values push up beyond the value of the structures on them. Uh, and it's very hard to overcome that at demolition time. So that's why we see so many older, lower-scaled uh, commercial districts and neighborhoods and cities knocked down in hot markets to build high-rise, because we need the density. But there has to be a better solution than this. And when the buildings, uh, the, the, our whole taxing structure that you referred to, uh, leads to these crazy situations, uh, in New York City, they have an, an enormously high uh, vacancy rate in street-level retail now. And it's not all caused by the Amazon effect and by online sales. Online sales still are only about 12% of gross sales in the country. So 90% of sales still happen in buildings. But the problem is the underlying real estate has gotten so expensive that you can't afford to keep the buildings there. And here's here are the uses. Here's one, one example. There's a building on Fifth Avenue in New York, some of the highest priced retail real estate in the world. Uh, and the Tommy Hilfiger flagship store uh, was paying and asking rent. And the landlord came back and said, no, the land is worth so much more. I'm going to raise your rent. Uh, and so they were occupying about 26% of the space, but they were being being asked to pay almost 80% of the building rent in an 11-story building. Something's out of whack with that. So, this speculative trap that we get into, where property value is detached from viable uses, uh, is something we've got to find a way to rebalance in the way we look at property value and real estate value. the, uh, the the next uh, item is uh, conflicting policies, and I won't dwell on this. But we have some inconsistencies between DOE uh, and between transit spending and preservation-oriented policies that we need to work out in a partnership arrangement. Uh, we can't do it alone, but we also uh, can't just sit by because we're losing stuff all the time. In in uh, w- with the idea that uh, we we ought to have a better urban development policy. We haven't really had uh, a department of housing and urban development policy in decades it's all been housing and they're backing away from that so i think it's time to reinvigorate hud which historically you may not know was the alternative to the department of interior in the johnson administration when they were trying to figure out where to put a preservation agency yeah
0: and what a what a what a missed opportunity there um to to be where the actual money is uh and and uh And I think even all my friends in the Department of Interior, um, who love having preservation where it is, would even appreciate um, having it in a place that's much better capitalized. And also, I'd also point out, we're talking about housing here, and and you brought it up a little bit when you're talking about density. Um, But one of the things that always drives me nuts about density is that, of course, historic neighborhoods are dense, uh, they're walkable, they're everything we really want in new communities. Um, They already exist. And you know, one of the density things, and I'd be curious what you think about it, but that always kind of um, ruffles me is this idea that by simply having more density, we are going to therefore have more affordable stru- more affordable housing, and that sort of trickle down theory, I just don't think works elsewhere. And I'm not really sure I understand how it works <laughs> when it comes to housing. I don't think if you look at there's a lot of housing in New York City that doesn't make it affordable.
1: Well, that's right. And and uh, the other side, I, you know, one of the tools, one of the most effective tools I've seen to deal with this is the community land trust model, where the value of the land is taken out of the equation. And that relieves enormous pressure. You can't make everywhere a community land trust, but it's going to be a real political issue in a property rights country uh, when you, like Oregon, say, we're going to disallow single-family detached housing forever, and oh, by the way, uh, we're going to require people to put accessory housing on their properties uh, if there's room to do it. And this is not something that's been publicly debated. I think this is going to be it, – it's, it's an interesting, in the abstract, attempt to try and resolve something, but I think it's going to be fraught with political opposition uh, from the property rights folks, and I think they have a legitimate case. I think we need to find other alternatives that make more sense so so uh the the last uh, uh couple of things I wanted to talk about are about how we um uh find the funding because you know, we, we have we still have the historic tax credits. Uh, we have found creative ways to combine uh, affordable housing tax credits and new market tax credits. Which, thanks to Senator Cardin, thank you for introducing the bill, we're extended for another year. We'd like to see those stay around. But there are very very few financing tools available to broad scale, and I'm saying small p preservation and conservation at the neighborhood and and uh, areas of city uh, level, and. We we need to find new tools. We haven't had anything new, really, since the tax credits and the affordable credits merging in. So I think it's time for us to put our our, uh, thinking caps on and come up with some whole new strategies for funding and underwriting sensible conservation of older areas so that we don't throw away the embodied carbon and we keep a sense of place in them. What those solutions are, I don't know. I think that's part of the ongoing dialogue. But I, I think it's a really critical thing that we come back and say, it's not just old preservation anymore. It's not just traditional approaches. Here's three new ideas we want to try out and see how they work. We want to make a better country.
0: Yeah, and as you know, here in here in Maryland, we're we're always willing to experiment with things at the state level, and and even just this session, um, we've helped write and and are working with a, a state senator to introduce legislation that would expand our pace program, which is one of those areas where there's some interesting. Um, work and um, product happening, sort of an alternative financing source. To expand the PACE program, call it the PACER program, and it will allow to to fund remediation and resiliency, which is something that is disproportionately hitting historic structures here in Maryland and elsewhere in the country. But there's not a really good funding source for resiliency and, and certainly not for remediation. You're talking about lead and asbestos and all these things that can be very expensive, particularly as you get into bigger structures. So we're playing around with some of those things, but you're absolutely right. There's just not enough out there, and there has to be more.
1: Well, from from what I see you and Maryland are among the most innovative, I think, in in saying there's a problem. Let's find a way to fix it. And fortunately, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the size of Maryland is small enough that you can take on some of these things and have a broad effect without having to deal with a a gigantic state population uh, somewhere like Texas or California, where it's so huge, it's a a hard initiative to apply broadly. I think you're a great incubator ground and proving ground to show how well these things can work
0: we're america in miniature tom (laughs) i love that (laughs) so the next big one of course is this conservation ethos right tying it all back in
1: yes Yes, I. Uh, you know we're we're um, looking at uh, 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 some potential overlap uh, as new preservation strategies with people like the Land Trust Alliance and the Nature Conservancy, where they've traditionally focused on land conservation uh, through easements and other things, uh, but have not necessarily been as focused on the structures there, many of which are historic, uh, and w- we see some real opportunities to merge those at a micro level where its history brought into a larger sense of open space and activity and recreation. But we also need to reset our value structure where we're saying this is not just about preserving a building dental or a cornice. It's about saving embodied energy and a, a part of our backgrounds that can be meaningful to us and connect us uh, to the fact that we're not the only ones here, nor we hope will be the last ones here.
0: And I I I, know uh, that you said that none of them are – this isn't an order of importance and and none of them are more important than the others. But, I mean, if I had to pick out one, I think I keep coming back to that conservation one. I think it ties together a lot of the other pieces um, just because it is such a priority and it is um, so central um, on a lot of people's minds about everything that's happening in this world. It seems to be that our natural world needs a lot of help and um, people want to – find solutions that are viable that that can move that needle do you agree on that? Where do you, where do you fall on these? I mean, I, I know they're all your babies, but...
1: No, I absolutely agree that that's the most important way forward, in large part because, and I, this is where I give credit to the, to the conservation movement, uh, had we not had a broad acceptance of things like recycling, the plastic in the waste stream would be even worse. The quality of water would be even worse. If we had not had an environmental sensitivity to what we're doing to the world and to ourselves, uh, it would wouldn't be as broadly accepted. So when you talk to a school child about what's recycling for, they get it. If you talk to a school child about what's historic preservation for, I'm not sure there's any awareness at all. And I'd like to ride on that coattail because in fact, we are part of it. We just haven't presented it that way. It's part of a bigger strategy that's important for all of us.
0: Right. Right. So is there
1: is there hope ahead for all of this? well uh, and I, I certainly hope so um i'm i'm uh, I, uh Uh, someone who wants to be optimistic. I think one of the best things we can do to get back on track is to vote Uh, this year. This is a very important year. Whatever your political leanings, uh, vote for change, uh, and vote for progress, and uh, vote for things that will deliver to us what we already know works. Uh, My sense is uh, we've been a little bit adrift, uh, and we need to recognize that as we move forward, but uh, that's the first step. uh, and then the, the other thing that I'm optimistic about, uh, and this isn't just generational pablum, uh, I actually believe that succeeding generations past the boomers are much more pragmatic, uh, much less uh, – uh, uh, well, I'm losing my word. Uh, they're, they're, they're much less rigid in their viewpoints about what alternatives are. Uh, and much more accepting of of diversity and other things that I think have been missing forever. So, I'm optimistic because the value set of the succeeding generation, uh, uh, as they take over the decision-making in the world, uh, will be more progressive, will be more realistic, will be more uh, accepting if we've restructured our message and how we prove our message to be useful.
0: Well... That's a good good place to end that conversation and a, uh, a quick and wild ride through this top ten of preservation and why why the stuff we do matters and and perhaps why people don't care and, and maybe fixing that and figuring out how to make them care before we leave you today. what is your favorite historic place or site?
1: Oh man that's a great <laughs> that's a great question and a hard one to answer. Um, I don't have a single one because I've been just personally and spiritually enriched by so many different kinds of places. I've had extraordinary experiences in Native American sites in New Mexico. I've had extraordinary experiences in lower Manhattan uh, in these wonderful spots that are very different in character, but they all give you something if you're receptive to it. Uh, I, I think any place where mankind has achieved something that expresses quality and craftsmanship uh, is a place that I would cherish
0: a very vague, very political answer. Um,
1: (laughs) Well, I honestly don't have a favorite. I I, I keep thinking I've been to some place that I think is the most important and most valuable, uh, but then, you know, you go to another place and you're touched in a completely different way. I will will say I have a special place for the main streets of America, just because it had such an effect on transforming my life and touches so many other lives day to day. So, main streets of America, I would say, maybe that's my favorite.
0: (laughs) I mean, the way you talk, you should run for office because now you've just endorsed America's Main Streets. I mean, that's that's like, <laughs> that's apple pie, baseball and Main Streets. I mean.
1: <laughs> well, well, thank it, you very much for having me, Nick. Yeah,
0: it's been a real pleasure talking with you and uh, look forward to hearing from you again very soon.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks
2: for listening to Preserve Cast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support and remember to keep preserving.